what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by The Goat. The goat. The goat. Yeah, he looks like a goat. Yeah, because I was thinking like <laughs> he's the original, the, <laughs> the greatest, the original sponsor. You know when people say the greatest of all time sponsor, yeah. but he just is like an angry old goat. A billy goat that eats cans and fucks <laughs> anything that gets in its path. <laughs> it's Jason Furman. Yep. Ein's a wiener. Ein's a wiener dog quip. I shouldn't really say that because that's your name for Jason, the Eins of Wiener. <laughs> Even though it's stuck and people all around the world, I heard people on Clubhouse saying it the other day, which was very funny. You know how it came to be, right? When he gave us those hoodies, yep. Jane loves her one, right? It's the blue that she loves and it's really nice, super comfortable hoodie. Mm-hmm. And she just has no interest in dog gear or dogs in general beyond like cuddling them. Yep. One day she couldn't find it and she's like, where's my, um, you know that blue hoodie? I'm like, which one? And you've got a few. And she's like, the um, Eins Wiener one. <laughs> <laughs> Did you laugh immediately? Hysterical. <laughs> and I said, say that again. I'm going to send it to Jason. Mm. And I got her to say it again. And now we're recording a whole ad about it. Yep. So anyway, if you want dog gear, Jason's the one to get it from. Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K? C-K. Yep. Dog Quip. Yep. Com. And before we wrap up, we've got a few more sponsors. In the, the pipe. In the pipe. Yeah, that's a better than saying in negotiations. Yeah. In the pipe. Looking to come on board. With the Einzawiener himself. The, the goat. The billy goat. The billy goat's gruff. <laughs> Let's start calling him the goat. <laughs> All right, that's it. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in the rainy studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. How dare you, sir? You said last time when I did that, don't keep talking about it. And I was going to do one and I thought, no, I won't do it because you'll go, oh, let's not talk about the rain. Yeah. Well, we're only making excuses for the fact that we actually record under this skylight that is the reason why we haven't been able to do video because it fucks up all the video. And now it's- Because we haven't got a whisper room. Yeah, we don't have a whisper room. We just room. don't have the funds because Patreon money isn't It's just, it's isn't just not enough. that million dollars, that hundred million dollars. We, do, we don't we have for. the Linus tech <laughs> finances to get that whisper room. Unless, look, unless there's a sugar daddy or mama out there who wants to throw it in the mix for yeah, us, yeah. they're pretty expensive and they're big too. Yeah. We have nowhere for one. But we want it. That doesn't stop us I would wanting make, it. I would actually probably shift my dining room table and put it in the dining room. <laughs> Seriously, I would put it out there. Yeah. All that right. would be a good place to put it. All right. Well, if anyone wants to buy us a whisper room. But in the meantime, we just have to put up with the rain noise. Yeah. Hey, we've still got so many questions to work through here. Before we do that, I've got a gripe. Yeah, what is it? And I've got to air it. Today on social media, I saw this ad for a new type of harness. Oh. It's a nice sort of tactical style harness. It's got like Velcro where you can put packets on it and, you know, okay. like all sorts of stickers and patches and everything. But what they're doing is they're advertising that this creates no pulling and so forth because it's got a little buckle at the front that you can connect your lead to. All right, yeah. Now, the thing that annoys me about those sort of things, when people see this and they fall into this paradigm of thinking that this is going to magically cure my dog – 
Guys, you've got to understand. I know there's a lot of people out there who are going to roll their eyes and they're going to say, we already know what you're going to say, but there's a shitload more of you, like trust me, and there's going to be people who are listening to this podcast who don't know any better. Now, when you clip that clip to the front and you put, and the dog pulls away from you, it's riding the harness into the neck of the dog mm. or it's pulling on the underarm of the dog. Mm-hmm. So either way, it's creating tension and pressure and it's still a form of punishment to the dog that when it pulls into the harness, it's going to feel some form of displeasure for doing it. Yeah. That's the crazy thing about it. That's the thing that really gets under my goat about these sort of things is when they advertise it like, oh, it's got a clip and it won't cause any more pulling with the dog. Mm. It may not, but it's still as prominent as a slip lead a correction chain, or even a martingale. It's no different. It drives me fucking crazy when Mm. I see that sort of stuff. What I think is interesting about the front attached harnesses, so like we address the elephant in the room in that Mm. it's actually, you know, depends on how they're used, but it's either punishment or negative reinforcement. That's why the behavior is changing. They are very popular amongst people, you know, who don't want to use tools and also don't want to train, right? Mm. But you are using a tool and you are training by using that collar. And so what- that, That harness, I should say. I had a very funny conversation with someone one time who was pitching everybody use the no pull harness and you're demanding it in fact because it was at a dog school like a little local club thing Mm. and someone turned up with a check chain and they were demanding no you can't use that you have to use the front attached harness and I you know was just a dickhead and kind of probed a little bit and was like how come like I don't I don't understand right like (laughs) I don't why would that be different Mm. like oh well you know like it's uh, stops the dog from pulling I'm like how come how come it stops the dog from pulling. And it's like as the tension goes into the leash, kind of twists the dog and it becomes uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, wait, hang on. So in order to relieve the discomfort, the dog adopts a new behavior. So negative reinforcement. Okay, got it. It works via negative reinforcement. Okay, cool. Understood. No problem. I understand. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. We're, so we're good with negative reinforcement. Sweet. Happy to use it. Mm. Ready to go. So there's that. That's funny. But. With those no-pull harnesses, what I have observed many, many times, because lots of people use them, heaps of people around my area just say that's what they work their dog on because they go to that dog club and everybody puts them on them. And for the most part, if your dog's not a really committed puller, it kind of does work a little bit. But what I've seen is that most dogs actually like consistently pull a little bit because what happens is, especially on larger breeds, is the buckle of the, like, sorry, not larger breeds, like mid-sized breeds, staffies, that kind of stuff. Mm the buckle hits them on the knees. And so it's actually quite uncomfortable for there to be no tension in the line. Mm -hmm. And the dog ends up sort of figuring out that if there's just a little bit of tension in the line, it's not so much that the no pull harness becomes uncomfortable, like the front attached no pull doesn't quite activate. And it's not so much that the handler identifies that as pulling on the leash and Mm. wants to, you know, do something about it. But it's the most comfortable spot for the dog is like a mild amount of tension on the leash because it means that the buckle then sort of heads up towards the handler in a straight line rather than like a J, which hits him in the in the legs. So it's pretty interesting. The no like the front attached no pull harness, the most comfortable position very often and observably is like a a little pull. A little bit of pulling. Just a little bit of pulling. (laughs) But that defeats the purpose of no Pull. Yeah. The thing I think that bothers me as somebody who looks past the materialism of the marketing yeah, is that it's very misleading. Yeah. I think that's a bit of a general problem with a lot of stuff that's out there. It's, yeah. It sells itself as a kind alternative and yet it's doing just as much or causing just as much of a problem that is considered with any other tool that they're using. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the- Let's get- I, I think what I'm trying to say in a nutshell without really- dragging this into a long-winded story about my annoyances 
is let's be real about things. Let's learn to look past the marketing bullshit of things. And let's say, yes, it does cause negative reinforcement. Primarily, that's going to be, you know, the the chief concern for anybody that's worried about what does it do? It causes negative reinforcement. It's going to cause pressure. It's going to make the dog understand the way to relieve this pressure is not pull, go back. It stops riding up against my neck. It stops pulling under my arms. It's uncomfortable, guys. Like, that's the reality of it. So let's not fade into this mysticism or this nirvana altruistic thinking of, oh, it's wonderful. It's going to resolve all my problems. Not pulling the dog's going to be so much more comfortable on it. The mere fact of any equipment that's worth its weight in gold, these harnesses, collars of any type when they're used properly, they're going to reduce the problem for you. And isn't that what we're after as dog owners? Mm. To spend a shorter time not having to nag our dogs, not having to confuse our dogs and not having our dogs wondering, what the fuck is it that you want me to do? Do you want me to be next to you? Am I supposed to pull? I don't actually know what I'm supposed to do. The whole point to utilizing any of these forms of tools is to communicate to the dog. Mm. Here is your space. This is where I want you to be. While I'm, And it's all about the me. This is about what I want with you when we're together. Mm. I want you to be in my space. I don't want you to be pulling on the lead. That's not what I want. It might not be acceptable to me. It not, might not be socially acceptable. It might be not be acceptable by my club standards. Nonetheless, this is where I need you to be. You're not at total liberty because if you're at total liberty, you could be pulling on the lead. Mm. That's what total liberty actually means. And we can argue that for anybody who wants to argue that. But trained liberty is when you, you're you walking around my body, not pulling on my lead because you know what the parameters of walking outside that lead distance or that leash distance means. Mm. I've seen the nopal harness is actually pretty interesting. The front attached nopal harness, I mean, because in a reactive dog, they're actually quite an effective training tool or management, I guess, more than training. But what happens is if the dog, like most tools, if the dog does a slow uptake of it, mm. it's kind of irrelevant, right? And and for the most part, it, it almost activates reactivity, aggression, that kind of stuff if it's a slow uptake. Yep. But if you get a dog that like lunges hard in those front attached harnesses, very often the dog kind of flips. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they do like a bike stop where they sort of upend. Yeah. And yeah. They, they kind of end up facing away yep. from what's creating their activity. Their mm. front end will jump up into the air and flip around backwards. Yeah. They actually can be a kind of an effective tool for like those kind of reactive dogs because it's a fucking aversive experience, right? Yep. So like when the dog does that big bark, lunge, growl, and so long as it's it's fast, the dog kind of has a very aversive experience, but then finds itself with its back to the threat. Yeah. And so will change its behavior pretty rapidly. The only issue is they then go for the, the slow uptake usually, right? So that that doesn't happen to them. Can I just say that although it sounds like I'm very neg against harnesses or any type of equipment, I'm actually not. I'm actually neg against the mismanagement through marketing that yeah. people put out there. The bullshit. The bullshit. That's what I don't like. Anyway, on to greener pastures. Let's talk about more questions from our guild. Yeah. So. Guild? Should I call them a guild? Or? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, that's that sounds nice. We're all part of the team. I think we got up to Ashlyn Carroll last time who asked us to talk about overtraining and the effects it has, especially regarding puppies and young dogs. And then there's a que- there's a comment under that. From Caitlin Barty that says, if they pick this, then how do you know if you're overtraining, especially if you have high drive dogs? If I'm going to lead into this, I kind of think that I would probably relate it to the no more one more time paradigm. Mm -hmm. We're going to use that, overuse that word paradigm. I'd probably relate it to that. I think that overtraining a dog is 
fundamentally like overtraining at a gym. Mm-hmm. There are schools of belief from most people that I've spoken to who are reasonably good at gym work. And I'm not talking about people who are bodybuilding for competition or anything like that. I'm talking about people who are, are fit, go to the gym to stay fit, to keep a body sort of posture it, or whatever they're doing. Most of those people have told me over the years that if you're in the gym for any more than 45 minutes, you're wasting time. Mm -hmm. Like you should be there. You should be efficient. You should be working on what body posture that you're working on and you shouldn't be overworking those areas as well. Like you should know not to work yourself to complete and utter fatigue Mm -hmm. to pain points. I relate it fundamentally to what I believe is the best way to train a dog. I don't believe a dog should be trained into distress. Mm -hmm. I think that, When we talk about stress, and we often do, it comes up in multiple circles that I'm in. It always seems to come up on chat groups on the internet. NDTF is a constant bubbling discussion point about stress and how much, when to stop, what to look for, observation points and so forth. You and I have talked about this on multiple occasions when we've been sitting around in the kitchen. I've heard you lecturing to people about it in your lectures I've heard multiple great trainers talking about it in their day-to-day discussion points. My belief is that stress is important. Mm -hmm. Every neurologist talks about the benefits of low stress. Primarily, they say or suggest that in small doses, it's actually good for you. In Mm -hmm. large doses, it has a negative effect causes glucocorticoids to go out of control, starts creating, you know, like a washover effect, can create an amygdala hijack again. The brain can start panicking. You can go into physical and mental distress over those sort of things. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, I think they're the things to start looking out for. Like we did an episode a while ago and it's an ongoing thing where we suggest that people know their dog. It only really comes about when you know your dog and you have intimacy with your dog's training levels and understanding what is the capability of the dog in front of you. Mm -hmm. To look at the individual dog and say, what is this dog capable of? That's hard when you're doing it for the first time to know where that is. For me, the way I answer this, it was a question we answered in NDTF the other day when a student was concerned about what sort of correction they should use when we were talking about the application of using positive punishes or even negative reinforcement. My suggestion to them and to anybody else, anybody who's listening is we always begin at the bottom up, never from the top down. Mm -hmm. So we always gauge it on the reaction of the dog. I've even heard you talking about similar conversations about the old way to introduce an Mm e-collar based the new way to introduce an e-collar. The old mentality of taking a dog in the field where it wasn't surrounded by anything, where there was nothing The dog wasn't interacting with any other forms of stimuli and then finding the level where the dog twitches the ear. Whereas the new way of thinking of it was more pairing it with food Mm -hmm. to find out when the dog will react and you get that Pavlovian sort of response. So as we've unpacked in previous discussions, it's not always that easy. Mm. Having these sort of discussions and depending on who you're talking to and the person's skill level and how attentive they are to minor stimuli or minor variations in in behavioural reactions. It's a hard one. It really is. Mm. Your thoughts? Yeah, I I think that just the very topic of overtraining can take many, many forms. Mm. Probably needs a little bit more definition. But I think what is excess is anything more than you need. Yeah. And so I think that when I apply that template to all forms of training, that's what I think is overtraining. And like 
you're talking to the overtrainer. Like I've fucked up some dogs from overtraining. There's a lot of ways you can do that. I mm. think that one of them that I experienced a long time ago, but you know, quite badly was just not reinforcing heavily enough. Mm. So reinforcing, you know, all positive reinforcement, no pressure on the dog, yep. but like I've got a hundred kibbles, so that's a hundred reps. And so I was for sure overtraining because like I gave the value of each behavior, uh, like the value of our kibble, right? Rather than like, you know, some sort of variable jackpot of reinforcement. So I think that's one way we definitely overtrain. I think as well in overtraining or in training in general is that, Every strength is a weakness somewhere else. So one of the things I see and I, I would put into the category of overtraining is you see, especially in sport dogs, but you know, pet dog people do it as well, is where too much emphasis is put onto one exercise at the cost of others. Down in motion in PSA is a really, you know, it's a three-point exercise, right? And I see mm. people like putting heaps of in the level two at one point. I mean, that part of it is three points. You see a lot of people creating a lot of risk in the way that they're training it, like putting so much value into it, both like negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement that the dog can get a little bit hectic around the idea of the exercise. Mm. The dog might even offer it because you put too much value in it. There's a lot of things that can go wrong and it's worth three points. And so the time, effort, energy that you're putting into that, even if you do it perfectly, right, and don't observably cause any issues with the dog and you do it great and everything goes well, I think it's possible to put that into the category of overtraining because it could cost. It could come at the cost of other parts. That's a really good example. I think as well we see this like quite a bit in IGP circles. Mm. I think that sometimes we see people say in the bark and hold that want real aggression because that's what a judge wants to see is real aggression in the bark and hold where the dog is, you know, really like I dare you to move to mm. the helper in the blind. Like if you move, I will bite you and displaying that real aggression and of course it depends on the judge but people win world championships with their dog barking and pray <laughs> you know mm. what i mean sometimes i think when we see people overtrain that especially with a young dog they create aggression and big feelings in the blind just fine but then that sometimes comes at the cost of livability of the dog one of the things that's really interesting to me is where you see people putting a big emphasis on barking with real aggression in the blind and these are people that will score in the high 70s and and they you know they they're sort of saying you know, the, the judge wants to see real aggression in the blind and that's true. Probably the judge does. And at most it's going to be like at the most, it's going to cause a two point sway, right? Mm. At the most. Uh, that's probably even extreme. It's probably more like half point, one point. Uh, and if you're playing in the, the high seventies, it's kind of like, <laughs> like there's other places you should look to recover points rather mm. than the, the way that your dog barks, because that real aggression is going to cause a mindset that is difficult for you to manage the dog in other places. Whereas of course, you know, and I'm not anti real aggression in the bark and hold, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago I was up in Brisbane with uh, Cheryl Chaffee, you know, national champion IGP competitor and her dog is fucking aggressive in the bark and hold. And he's a really good, like she's the national champion. The dog, It's all there. Right. Mm. And for her, that is the difference of winning and losing because she's squeezing every point out and she yep. wants the real picture. She is a judge. Mm. She wants the real picture in the dogs and blah, blah, blah. Like, so like, I'm not saying don't do it, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I am saying like, as an example of you can overtrain one aspect that, comes at the cost of others and, and a strength in one place can very quickly become a weakness in another. So I think that's worth acknowledging in overtraining. I think overtraining can take on the form as well of 
you know, the good dogs will train to death. Mm. And, you know, we have bred dogs on purpose to have no self-preservation. And the only reason that they survive as a species is because we act as their custodians. But not only to death, but to physical damage and detriment as well. Totally, mm. totally. I'm aware of the hypocrisy as someone who has a dog that is constantly injured. Right? And, and yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But mm. like, that is the, I think for sure, part of overtraining is just because usually we would say, and like, I want to say that it's readable in the dog. If you're going to overtrain, you, you hit a point of diminishing return. You see that the dog is no longer as enthusiastic on this rep as he was in the one before. And you mm. say, yep, he's overtrained. But some dogs will never diminish. And especially depending on the, the reinforcer you're using and how badly the dog wants it and, you know, how attuned that dog is to his own body and willingness to fight through pain or even ability to fight through pain. I think sometimes we, we refer to dogs who are, you know, quite willing to fight through pain. It's very possible that we're talking about dogs that don't feel pain, right? In certain states of drive. And so as you, know, you could for sure, and I know people whose dogs have died on the field because they've just not paid attention to the fact that the dog will not stop in mm. the same way you will feel your, well, and some people as well, you see marathon runners fucking collapsing in the marathon, yes. right? Yeah. Because of the amount of drive that I have, the drive and determination to be successful will turn off my ability to read my own body. Mm. And so, you know, as custodians of the dogs, that's our job is to not allow them to do that to themselves. I remember a while ago when you were talking about an example with Rip where I believe you were suggesting that as his father, you knew when enough was enough for him, mm. but he didn't. Like he didn't know how to control his own emotions, how to control what time he should go to bed and so forth. But mm -hmm. you knowing him well and knowing how he's going to respond to things tomorrow. I think you talked about that and I thought that's a really good example. Mm. He's not in a position, and if it, that's comparable to some of those really high drive dogs, they're not in a position at that point to understand what it is to go into depletion, yeah, you know, like to go into a negative mindset or yeah. not a, not so much a negative mindset, a negative, what would you call it, a negative um, return. Yeah, point of diminishing return. Yeah, point of diminishing return um, because they just don't understand it. They're yeah. not in a position to understand it. Their mind is somewhat immature at that point in time. Their desire to want something is so great that they don't understand the outcome, what's going to happen. Like yeah. they don't understand what the pain they're going to live with, the destruction it's going to cause them. Yeah. Mate, it's the same thing with me. The other night, for some reason, I was watching something on TV and it, and I thought it's going a little bit further than what I usually like to be awake, than what I'm comfortable with. Well, mate, I pushed through. I was fucking tired. Then all of a sudden, because my circadian rhythms were out of whack, I couldn't go to sleep properly. Yeah. I started to get anxiety about it. And then the more I tried to push myself into sleep, I got up. I followed some of the advice that I learned from Matthew Walker from his book. I got up. I started doing things and I felt tired. Then I went back to bed. Then I looked at the time and thought, I'm only going to have five hours now. I'm going to be fucking stressed. So that yeah. made me stress more. And all of that made me have a really shit and a very unproductive day. My mood was all over the place. Like, mm. let me tell you, I was literally a bubbling mess the next day because I pushed myself into uncomfortable territory. Yeah, That's kind of overtraining or overdoing something. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something earlier before, which triggered me. I was watching something on Instagram. It was an Instagram reel the other day where two guys were talking about the livelihood of two billionaires. And one guy had made an absolute squillion where the other guy had made a shit ton of money, mm -hmm. you know, both billionaires. But one guy said in the conversation, he goes, this billionaire made so much money in one week 
that he made much more than the guy made in the entire time he had this business. Mm-hmm. The other guy in the conversation, and I wish I knew who it was and who the people he was talking about, I was only listening to the the relevant information, but he said the other guy, the less lucrative billionaire, has something that the other guy does not have. And he said, what's that? He goes, he knew when enough was enough. Yeah. And that was the poignant point of the example of what is enough Mm. and when is enough. And that's a question still to this day that a lot of people don't know how to answer correctly or live with correctly, like what is enough? Yeah. When do you have enough? So I know some people who they're just constantly hustling. They're always looking for the next thing to make themselves richer or get more. I know other people who have got very basic livings and they seem to be the fucking happiest people I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I don't know why, but other people who are hustling are happy doing what they're doing as well. Yeah. So it's not to say that people who are hustling are going to be worse off than people who are living in, you know, like a rented one bedroom apartment that have got basically a fold out couch bed or living in the van that they can drive around wherever they want to. I guess primarily the question is to you, the individual, to the person who is listening to this, what is enough for you? When is it going to be enough? And if you're the guardian or the representative of a dog, how do you decide when is enough for that dog? Yeah, exactly. There is no formula beyond the dog and like what you want from the dog and the trajectory the dog is on. So like it's, there's a lot of variables. There's Mm -hmm. no, you can't just look at any one training session and say that dog's being overtrained. Right. And you need to know like, what is the trajectory of the dog and how's the dog feel about it and that kind of stuff. Oh, people on the internet love to do that. (laughs) (laughs) There was a clip that I put up the other day of a little staffy running on a treadmill just on my own page. It was cute. Little staffy. He had a happy little face trotting along the girl had this funny soundtrack and I love the soundtrack with the little staffy trotting along on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. And somebody had written underneath it, this is shit, get your ass into gear, don't do this sort of cruel stuff. Completely misread the picture they were looking yeah, at. Yeah. Completely misread it. Like the great thing about it was the author of that video said, hey, thanks for your concern. Let me just tell you, this is a self-powered mill. Yeah. Dog's having a great time, like actually wants to be on a mill and really went to great lengths to answer it. Of course, no comment, no apology or, hey, thanks for educating me underneath it or anything like that, which I thought was really cool of the original author. They went to the trouble to say, hey, dickhead, you know, in the nicest way possible. I can understand. But the shame is, the sad part was that the person who just threw out these aspersions didn't even take their time to say, could I ask you a few questions? That to me looks a bit confronting, but I don't know anything about it. Do you think you and I could have a bit of backwards and forwards to try and at least alleviate my mind on what I'm seeing here? Wouldn't that be nice? Mm. Wouldn't that be a much better world where people would actually doing polite things like that to each other? Yeah. The other thing that's really interesting and not too many people know this is, you know, you're just able to scroll past stuff without getting engaged. (laughs) It turns out if you see something in your newsfeed and you don't like it, you can just do nothing about that other than sort of swipe further. Do you mean that's kind of like pornography where you don't have to watch it? Don't have to. No. Like yeah. you can just swipe a little bit further yep. and it's gone from your life forever. Yeah. But if you were to say comment, then it's going to put you in a little loop of rage for a little while because now you're going to be engaging in the comment. You're going to yep. be looking back for, you're going to be back and forth. Mm. But like I said, and it took me a long time to learn this, turns out you can just do nothing and it disappears from your life forever. Fancy that. It's shocking. Yeah. <laughs> it's shocking, but it's true. Mm. One last thing I would, did want to say on overtraining, I think as well, 
you're, and this is probably more to the point of, I think what Ashlyn's asking is like, you know, young dogs and people training too many things and turning little like puppies into little prank monkeys. Mm. And I think one of the issues with that is like, I've done that as well. You know, I've, I've done that for sure. Is that one thing I've learned is it's kind of, with a young dog, I really only am interested in building the characteristics of an adult dog that I want to train rather than training a puppy to do the the tricks that I will want an adult dog to be able to do. So for me, when I get that puppy, all I'm interested in really is his brain becoming, you know, oh, not brain, let me rephrase. All I'm interested in him really is turning into like having – all I'm interested in really is that he grows to have the attributes of the adult dog that I want to train to do the things. Mm. I'm absolutely not interested in training to do the things with a tiny puppy for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's highly possible you can overtrain, turn them into little prank monkeys. That's most likely what's going to happen. But also a lot of the things, especially when you look at people who want to, you know, like this is my dog. I've had a couple of pet dogs or whatever. I'm going to get the sport dog. It's going to be my world champion dog. I'm going to be the best in the world. And they put too much pressure on that dog, like mm. social pressure, not just like it's pressure of expectation, not like necessarily physical training pressure. But also a lot of the things that you're going to teach a dog are really specific ways to move their body, right? And if you teach them to them as a puppy, they're going to be in a very different body by the time you're being assessed on how they do those things. Mm. So one of the funny things I see is like people teaching little puppies to heal and you're going to be teaching that puppy to heal for like the next eight months at a minimum, because like he is going to be changing and his reference points in how he's going to heal is going to be changing along the way. So what you're better off is just like teaching him to be cool, right? yep. teaching him to be like a little dude that you enjoy hanging out with. Mm. And then when he's full size, go like, all right, in the next week, I'm going to teach you how to heal. And that's all it'll take instead of like, you know, luring him into position for the next eight months. Right. And so like you do what you want. And I think the issue is there's, there's lots of examples you see of people like who do that. So you look at Omar Von Mueller, right? Yep. Like he's got a young dog. What's well, an adult dog now, but even as a young dog could do a million things. Monkey. Yeah. Mm. But he's exceptional. And the, like the dog is no doubt great as well, but he is exceptional on like at training the dog. And so when I say don't train young dogs to do stuff, cause there's no point and you'll overload them and blah, blah, blah. Of course, someone will pull out the video and go, Oh really, Pat? Well, here's Omar Von Mueller doing this. Mm. And, and to you, I would say you are not Omar Von Mueller. And he's taking his time. Yeah. Like, and, and he is the exception. He's yeah. not the rule. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's probably the case. Like I think anything more than you need is overtraining. Yeah. Excess is always excess. Mm. I think the one thing that I've tried to encourage people, and I'm trying to say this respectfully without making it sound derogatory to anyone is don't be the Joe Jackson to your Michael Jackson. Mm. Because people have said to me before, well, you know, would Michael Jackson ever have become so great if it wasn't for Joe? Well, that depends on how Michael Jackson felt about what Joe did to him. Yeah. And that's the same thing that you've got to consider. Like Michael Jackson wasn't entirely happy about how his childhood played out. Yeah. The pressure and what he got pushed into. Now you might say, well, it made him great, but did it? Did it make Michael Jackson a, a complete and happy person in the, in the long run? Mm. Because when he tried to convey how he felt, he wasn't always happy and he wasn't always complete and he never had a childhood at the risk of becoming what the world deemed him to be great. He, I don't know if he ever believed that that was 
the truth. It's hard for me to actually know the truth, like the full story of that, because I've never sat down with Michael Jackson and asked him. But I've heard interviews where he's talked about it. Yeah. I've heard interviews where he's talked about the incredible pressures that Joe Jackson put him under. And that's the thing that I guess, is that the right thing to do to a little puppy? Is yeah. that the right? Is that even the right thing to do to a dog to demand greatness onto the dog to push it to those points? Yeah. To push it into, into fatigue where you're happy as the handler of the dog, the owner of the dog, because the dog is pushed into those areas for you, but is the dog really happy? Mm. You know what will fuck you up when you think about it too much? Is- all, all of that, 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 <laughs> that, that yeah. gets under your skin sometimes. Yep. What fucks me up when I think about it too much is the tortured existence of so many artists mm. who perhaps wouldn't have brought us their amazing art had they, they not suffer. lived that torture. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of good artists. A classic one is, what's the name of the song by the Foo Fighters? Dave Grohl does a, a solo of it just on acoustics. The lyrics say something like, breathe out so I can breathe you in. And I think that's just, like, I get fucking shivers when I hear the, the mm-hmm. lyrics of the song. Everlong, that's the one. There's a million good examples of what you could talk about in paintings, in music. But when I hear the lyrics to Everlong, like, he suffered a breakup. He suffered the love of somebody that suddenly didn't love him back, and it mm-hmm. fucking it broke him into pieces. Mm-hmm. And a song that I think is one of the greatest Foo Fighter songs that have ever out, which is Everlong, and, I mean, even that lyric where he comes up with that, I mean, man, that fucking chokes me up when I hear that. Yeah. That came from pain. That came from somebody suffering. Mm-hmm. And there's been, like I said, millions of examples of music that people have done from heartache yeah. or from loving somebody who they've never been able to tell because they have no confidence to do it or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, the pain of childhood, of not having a relationship with their father or mother or whatever it is. It's miraculous what people have created. You're 100% right. Mm. That does fuck with my head, those sort of things. Yeah, let's not think about it too much. Yeah. Next question. Selenius Gertz. Why do you call yourself Selenius, Ben? Why do you do that? Did you say maybe his real name? I don't know. Anyway, Ben Gertz asks yeah, us. That's a question that needs to be answered now. <laughs> or have we just outed his secret identity? <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> Sorry, mate. All right. Hey, he says, uh, talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect and how it even gets highly intelligent people. Here's the funny thing about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Right? So people who don't know a Dunning-Kruger effect, you should look that up because Google will probably explain it better than me. Mm. But Dunning and Kruger did an experiment. Basically, their thing is that morons are often very successful imagine there's a a hundred things you can know in a given field, people who are low intelligence, but very high enthusiasm. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. It's very high confidence. So low intelligence, very high confidence. And say, you know, five of the hundred things can often become industry experts because of the way that they so confidently say those five things. Whereas an actual industry expert lives in constant self-doubt because they are more intelligent and say they know 80 of the 100 things that you could possibly know, they are aware that there's 20 things that they don't know and spend their whole life in concern over that. what if they are found lacking over those 20 Mm. and therefore never have the confidence that the other person has and therefore never become like, you know, the pillars of, of authority in that space. All right. It's a very common thing, but here's what I know of the Dunning-Kruger effect is everybody thinks that they're the one that they're killing it. Well, no, everybody thinks that like everybody that I know that's aware of the Dunning-Kruger effect says like, Oh, that's me. Yeah. I'm, I'm the person that knows 80 of the things and, and is constantly living in self doubt over the others. I don't know a single person. And obviously this is how it works. Like I'm aware that this is, 
that is part of the phenomenon of the thing, but I don't know a single person that has heard of it and then goes, oh, that's me. I'm the moron that knows fires. <laughs> and so we all in the dog space, everybody talks about the Dunning-Kruger effect, but maybe, maybe you're Dunning, not Kruger. Right? Mm. <laughs> the Dunning-Kruger effect is fascinating. Again, get ready for an eye roll because I'm going to bring guitars into a dog training podcast. Okay, It's just experience in learning. I, I like to use it yeah. because I'm shaping myself through learning a whole new platform. When I first started to get into some really basic stuff and I started to learn easy chords and stuff like that, I started to think I can hear music. I'm killing it. Like I'm starting to feel good, Mm -hmm. you know, but the reality is, and a lot of the good mentors online, some of the people who are really worth following and really good guitarists, really patient, put out a shitload of free content and really juicy, really meaty content for people to get their ears, eyes and hands on. They talk about how just when you think you've got to a great stage in guitars, you realize that there are all of these other techniques and methods that have to go on top. Like you have to layer these in, you know, like vibratos where you can make the strings move to give it a bit of body and and just differences in using sharps and flats and so forth in the way that you fret up and down doing good bar chords and everything like that, like actually learning how not to vibrate or make a humming noise when you're playing or not to squeak strings and so forth. There's so many fucking disciplines. Yeah. And you kind of start off thinking, oh, yeah, I'm sounding great. And I remember I played something to my mum on the phone and my mum goes, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, oh, good on you, Dale. You sound, I can hear something, but I don't know what it was you're trying to play me. And that for me was the killer. And then I realized, ah, I'm in the Dunning-Kruger effect right now because I kind of felt good like, oh, yeah, I'm making some really cool music. The reality is like I'm just a beginner and I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying being a beginner and learning to do something. I have stages where it's incredibly frustrating. And then I think back along the lines of learning how to train dogs and especially in bite work training and so forth. And remember all the, you know, the first time I took a Roddy on a rag and I did it well and everybody said, oh, you know, I did a good job and was all patting me on the back. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm fucking great at this. Then I remember having a dog which I transferred onto a sleeve one day and it didn't go to plan at all. The dog was nervous biting. It was kind of like a being an accordion up and down the, the sleeve, mm-hmm. you know, hitting at one end and, and the other end. And then you could see the dog entirely lost its confidence. So because I didn't know what I was doing, I fucked the dog up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I allowed the dog to lose its confidence. I had no place putting the dog onto a sleeve that early in my training. It was a good experience for me. I was young. I was enthusiastic. I saw other trainers doing something similar. So I thought if they can do this, I can do this. Mm. You know, there's no reason why I can't do this. But the dog wasn't ready for it. It just didn't have the confidence and the drive to be able to push through something like that. My presentation wasn't all that good. There was a lot of things that I didn't do really well. But for me, that was pivotal in my learning not so much for the dog. I did get the dog back. It wasn't a horror story entirely. Sure. The way I got the dog back was I stopped insisting that I had to do it and I went and asked Boyd. Mm -hmm. So I said to Boyd, I don't know what I'm doing wrong here. And he came over and he showed me and he said, you're taking too many steps. Like you've gone from, instead of staying at one, two, three, you've gone one, five, nine, 12. And he said, some dogs are ready for that and some dogs aren't. Mm primarily that's why I keep insisting on people working on that millimeter, centimeter, meter. I know I harp on about it, but if you can relate to that and you can think about it, it can save you from fucking things up because it's simplified. It's just a simplified version that you can relate to easy. It's a metric system of 
measuring things out, instead of cutting something too long or too short, you can look at it and go, that's how I need to cut it. And that's how you need to do something when you're shaping any form of exercise. For me, all of those bad experiences were some of the best learning experiences I've gone through. Now I'm older, even though I still feel the frustration, even though I still get mad with myself when I can't fret something well or I can't figure out a problem, you know, in business or in sitting down with an employee or training a dog or something like that, I kind of look at it and still remind myself, what are you telling everybody else in this situation? The answer is, what's the lesson? Mm. What am I learning here today? What was I supposed to learn from being in this? Not like, fuck the world, you're all pieces of shit, and I don't know anything, and I'm so stupid. Instead of negatively phrasing the situation, I just ask myself that question, what did I learn about today? Mm. It didn't go my way. Maybe it wasn't supposed to. Maybe I was supposed to meet this person halfway, and I refused to do that. My ego got in the way of a good relationship here. Mm. I have my own issues with Dunning-Kruger in that, <laughs> like I'm a good dog trainer. I'm good, right? I'm a better teacher than I am on the tools, but I'm still very, very good on the tools. But then I go to an event like, you know, last year when I was at PSA Nationals and what I have the skill of being able to do is like I can hang with the big boys. I can hang with people who are better trainers than me, of which there are many, many, and sort of disguise myself amongst them and pick up what they're doing. And, and like I totally acknowledge like these guys are way better than me. They've, you know, taught they've trained they've titled and trained more dogs than I've had hot dinners but like I offer value I know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm progressing and the more time I spend with those people the more tricks I learn from them and my skill set is in training people to do complex things with dogs and like I'm really comfortable in that space right yep and that, that that's fine but then I'll do something like go to an agility trial like a, or watch like a world championship agility trial and I'm like I don't even know what I'm watching (laughs) (laughs) and people are doing shit. And like, I'll hear some agility people like talking about, you know, like using terms, you know, that I'm sure relate to their position relative to the dog and the obstacle and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. Like I don't have a frame of reference and I am so far, like I just don't have a fucking clue. And, and if I, if you would ask me, can you train it? I know we've had this conversation a million times. If you would ask me, can I train a dog to do agility? Like, yeah, of course I could. And at a local level, I could probably be the best. Basic and tactical, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But like at a local level, uh, yeah. I'm fine. I could be the best on my street. No problem. <laughs> right? mm. But then I watch like, and I can watch world champion protection dog trainers and go like, you're not going to surprise me. I'm going to be impressed by things that you do for sure. And I'm going to want to be as good as you, but you're not going to surprise me. You're not going to blow anything out of left field. I'm going to be fucking impressed, but nothing's going to blow my mind. Cause I, I know the stuff I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm reasonably good at implementing it. Right. But then I watch something like that. That's just outside of my wheelhouse. And I'm like, Oh, I don't. And I've coached people in agility in the basics of like, not in the doing of it, but in the like, Hey, this the is how you solving. raise a dog. Yeah, mm. exactly. Right. Yeah. But then I watch like world champion level stuff of it and I'm like, <laughs> like I, I don't even deserve a place in the fucking crowd, <laughs> let alone like I couldn't stand on the field, not a fucking chance, which is cool, right? Like mm. that's, that's part of being in. And then what, what happens with me then is then I'm like, okay, now like I'm obsessed with this for the next six weeks. Like I get, have to at least be able to hold a conversation with these people, right? I have to at least be able to understand the terms that they're using so that I'm not embarrassed to be around them. And that's... That's how the Dunning-Kruger effect affects me, for sure. I'm Dunning and Kruger in the same day, depending on who I'm talking to. I'm like, oh, everyone shut up. I got this. I know what the fuck's going on. And then I can change crowds of people and be like, ah, fuck, I don't know anything. 
that makes me relive times where I've had shameful conversations with people where I've answered things where I had no fucking place doing it. <laughs> um, and I think I've talked about it on an earlier episode. I can't remember if I have or not. I know I'm pretty sure I've told you and I've told other people where there used to be this forum that before Facebook got really popular called Dogs Online, mm-hmm. where used, people used to go and type things out to each other. Everyone who's been around for a long yeah. enough time has been on there. Somebody was talking about lure coursing one day. Now, let me tell you, I'm going to be honest here. I know nothing about lure coursing. Yeah, yeah. I've never been on the field with lure coursing. Tell a lie. I have been on the field with lure coursing dogs. I've watched it. But there was a conversation which I chimed up in. And there was somebody in the conversation who was a fucking expert at lure coursing. And they said, stop the conversation, everyone. Glenn's here. He's going to tell us how it all goes down. <laughs> and I got fucking called out big time. And, mate, to be honest, even though I was over my head, I insisted that I had to have a dog in this race. Yeah. And I kept fucking, like, not only did I reach rock bottom, I went and got fucking dynamite so I could blow a hole in that face. I just kept going lower and lower and lower until finally I just disappeared off the conversation. I sat there one day and I had to have a conversation with myself where I was thinking, fuck man, like you really have dug yourself into a hole now and everybody there knows that you're a dickhead in this conversation. Yeah, That was confronting. That was a hard thing for me to do, to have a word with myself, to say, look at all these people. You've got all the eyes of the room on you right now. Every single person is watching what you're going to say next. Not in admiration, in bemusement for what a fuck you are. <laughs> and it but, mate, it took me a long time to come to the recollection of that and only when I really could not go any further. Yeah. Like I'd literally hit the molten core of the planet before <laughs> I fucking pulled myself out of it. Now, that was hard for me to admit. That was hard for my ego to allow me to bow out of that conversation. And it wasn't for many years later. that There were several people in that conversation. It wasn't for many years later that I actually apologised for my part in that conversation. I said... And they go, look, man, I know, I, I get it. I understand that in some areas you've got big pull, but in here some you don't. And here you don't. And like you said about the agility, uh, same thing for me, mate. Like, you know, there was a girl that worked for us who did NDTF a while ago, Rachel, who still to this day, like she's pulling first and seconds at big trials in agility. Yeah. Anyone who wants to know anything about agility, I would say I'm going to link you up with Rachel on Facebook and the two of you can just go off and do your thing. Yeah, yeah. And I do that regularly now. I match people up on a regular basis. When people say to me, hey, mate, I want to get deep into the weeds of nose work. Somebody did it today from one of the courses. They said, really interested in doing this. I said, great. I know the person that I'm going to hook you up with. I'm not going to waste time trying to do it. I'm too busy and I'm not the right person to speak to. Here's the right person. You two speak, go away and happy nose working. Because for me, it would be, all I would be doing is stalling them, wasting their time. And it's just something that I, I don't have the time to do. That comes back to that, don't let your ambitions get mixed up with your capabilities. One of my favorite sayings. Yeah, I almost think about that on a regular basis and say it to people on a regular basis because I just think I'm going to save you the hurt. I'm going to yeah. save you the fatigue, the embarrassment and all the negative emotions that are going to come your way by getting yourself into a position that you really you just can't dig your way out of. I'll tell you a funny story about when I was full of shit. <laughs> Is that when you were in Afghanistan? You jumped into the river of it? No, no. Oh, well. <laughs> Mate, so 
a big chunk of the time that I did in the army was in the tag. Yep. I'm pretty sure I can talk about it. Yeah, this is all open source. So the tag has- uh, What does tag mean? The so, tactical assault group. Right. So it's the tactical assault group is what's called, it's domestic counterterrorism. Yep. And the army's tactical assault group, there's two. There's a tactical assault group east and there's a tactical assault group west. There's one on the east coast, one on the uh, west coast. And they are considered the force of national last resort, right? Right. So it is like there's no one else after them. And so it's a big deal for the tag to be used. And the tag is basically like it's the big black death machine that turns up to fix a problem, Yeah. right? So anyway, I spent the majority of my army career was in the tag, the tactical assault group. And so there's two land platoons. There only has to be one, but there's usually two land platoons, a water platoon, and a sniper platoon. Mm -hmm. And so the land platoons have like primacy over a land assault. The water platoon has primacy over a water assault. And then there's snipers that will assist in both. So anyway, the landies and the wateries were away and only snipers were around. And I was the sniper platoon sergeant at the time, right? And they were away on an exercise and something was happening at the base and there was a parliament, they were building this new thing, which has since subsequently been built. The plans were in the works to want to upgrade this facility. Mm -hmm. And a big part of it was a like ginormous training facility for the wateries, right? Now I've never been in water platoon. I don't know fucking anything about water platoon. Even though I was in the whole thing, I've never, I don't scuba dive. And that thing is scuba diving, right? Like that's their thing, right? They assault a ship and you wouldn't even know they were on the ship until it's too late, right? Like that's the idea. <laughs> so anyway, we get the call from the CO, mind you, because the, the whole army, like the whole unit's all over the place and the, the guys were away in Queensland saying, Pat, there's a parliamentary spending inquiry here at the base and they want to know about, there's like a couple of, like however many it was, tens of millions of dollars to build this dive facility that the wateries have asked for. Mm-hmm. And basically they're here as a bunch of senators and parliamentarians and all these people are going to make the D on whether you're getting the money to build this facility for the guys and you, we've got to run the watery demo. So the tag always has to do these fucking demos because like the tag's a very expensive machine and so- Constantly, people are like, "Why do we give these guys so much money? I want to see what they can do." Is this the watermelon shooting thing? Yeah. Well, so in snipers, like when I was a sniper student, I've got a video on this. Mm. I probably can't put it on Facebook. I'd love to show people, but like, you give this spiel at the demo, and it's like demonstrating capability because a lot of people are like, "Hey, these guys are the force of national last resort. Like, can I see that? Like, I want to see what is the fucking skill set that we keep in the in the glass jar, Mm. right? That's Mm. like break case break in case of emergency." Yep. So what I used to do, like in the sniper one, went like I was an assaulter and was in the assault teams for a long time. But when I was in snipers, like there's a part where as the platoon sergeant, I'm standing there giving this spiel and I keep drinking from a coffee cup. Like, and people, it, it puts people off because they're like, why the fuck? Like, can you not drink coffee for just a few seconds while you're talking to these parliamentarians and all kinds of shit? And then the cup gets shot out of your hand. Right. Yep. So like, that's like, it's a, it's a fucking crazy demo. Then they, they shoot these watermelons and all kinds of cool stuff. Like it's a, just a big wank fest of like, this is where your money's going. This is how good we are. Anyway, so <laughs> at short notice, like same day, they're like, these guys, they want to, because they were upgrading huge parts of the base mm. and like they want to, they want justification for the watery stuff. So you need to take the demo. And so I call the wateries, they're away and they're like, the demo gear is already there. It's like a stand that they can set up with mannequins and all kinds of stuff. And someone's got to get the thing. So <laughs> me and these other snipers go running up, we throw it all in the car. We go run it up to where these things, we set up the watery demo. And there's all these other things there. We've got it. I'm standing there in this fucking wetsuit <laughs> in a rebreather that I have no idea how to use, right? Yep. Like I have not only never used one, this is the first time I've ever like even looked at it in detail, right? And I'm standing there dressed in this scuba suit that I haven't got a fucking clue, right? Mm. And we've got all the grappling hooks and all the fucking underwater like 
you know, like the little mini submarine bullshit that all the crazy shit that they have. Right. Yep. And these parliamentary spending commission that come over and they start asking me technical questions about this stuff to which I have no answers. Oh God. Right? <laughs> well, Pat Stewart doesn't get caught with no answers. <laughs> so I am fucking lying so much. Like they're like, how long can you be out? I'm like three hours. And like, how fast can you go with that thing? Six knots. Like I'm just fucking pulling numbers, right? Yep. Like total bullshit. Like how's his grappling hook work? I'm like, yeah, I'll show you. I'm like blasting the grappling. <laughs> like I'm learning about how to, it's like, I was like, I'll figure this out. It's a hydraulic fucking grappling hook. I, like I've seen other people use it. I'll be able to figure it out. Right. Yep. I'm fucking around. I'm lying through my fucking teeth to these people about what it is to be in the water platoon and fucking <laughs> tell them all this fucking bullshit. Anyway, money got approved. They built the facility. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was when I was- Are you sure wild. we can put that online? Yeah, it'll be fine. Okay. I was wildly out of my depth. Okay. But, yeah, it was pretty funny. Mm. And then when the waters came back and they were like, oh, I heard it went well. They're going to build a thing. I was like, yeah. And I was like, hey, how fast can that thing go? And I wasn't, like, too far off. I was like, how, how long can you use those rebreathers for? Like, I wasn't too far off everything that they said. I had an understanding of their capability. I just didn't know. If you had asked me to get in the water with it, I would have drowned for sure. <laughs> but I had a, a, an understanding of what they were capable of. That wouldn't have been a good look if... <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, if they'd asked me to demo anything, like, beyond standing there, I would have drowned in front of them. And I would have gone down the ship, too. I would have drowned. I yep. would have, like... I wouldn't have put my hand up and been like, oh, actually, I'm one of the snipers and we just got told to come up here and do this. I, <laughs> I would have been, like... I would have saluted and just sunk to the bottom of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, mm. all right, moving on. Yes. Susan Pickett-Hoy. Different ideas on how to teach kids to train dogs as 4-H is ramping up. Maybe ideas for games and focus exercise. Easy ways to teach basic behaviors in group settings for kids. What's 4-H? 4-H. I think Tyler told us about it. I don't know what the 4-H's stand for, but it's like a kid's camp kind of ah, thing. Ah, right. Yeah, okay. so it's like a summer activity kind of thing, I imagine. And yep. they do like... I guess it's like a more targeted kind of scouts. Like they go to dog training camp, I guess, yep. or yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's all I know about it. Tyler told us about it one time. That's my only intro to it. I'm probably going to take a leaf out of what Mike Suttle does. And he teaches a lot of kids to do chicken training. Mm. And I really like that. I've watched his videos multiple times where he's got, I think he's had his own children and their friends and bunches of kids that have come around to his sheds. And he's taught the children how to actually train a dog by understanding how to train a chicken mm. and the intricacies around getting markers right. He's shown them how to do that. He's shown them how to select an appropriate type of reward. And then he's also done a very basic to an elaborate shaping and chaining exercise where he can start introducing like a little chicken obstacle course where the chicken is learning just to walk around a cone and then he extends it further out to walking through tunnels and all sorts of things. I like that for young children to kind of learn the concept of yeah. how important Pavlovian conditioning is, a clicker acquisition, shaping I, and chaining. I agree entirely on teaching kids to train. I think that's a great idea. Mm. This is a question that sort of piqued my interest. This is four weeks ago. Yeah, this yeah I know. It's um, wild. It piqued my interest when I saw it. So like Remy, for example, he – well, to be specific actually, not for example – he doesn't really work for other people mm. and, and not for lack of like, it's not like he does it. He just doesn't have the opportunity. Like no one else really handles him. He'll work for jazz because he believes that she can reinforce him, but like no one's asked him to do his stuff. Mm. But what regularly like, and I mean dog training people, people who know what they're doing. So regularly people will, you know, in my like building or, you know, down the park or whatever, 
if they end up with his toy in their hand, the first thing everybody ever wants to do is fucking tell him to do something. Yeah. Right. And if it's an adult, he just grabs the toy straight off him. Right. And like, he's just like the, is the moment someone tells him to do something, he just goes through them to take the toy. Like, and, and it, you can observe it that he's like, you don't fucking tell me what to do. Like the, the only reason I do stuff is because I get stuff and I can just get that thing from you. Like that, the, <laughs> like that, I'm not going to do a little monkey drill to earn that ball. Mm. I will earn the ball, the ball via taking it from you because I have no respect for you. Right. But then often kids will grab his ball, right? There's a lot of kids in my building. They'll grab his ball and he, he doesn't do what they say. They all tell him to do stuff. He never does what they say, but he just kind of stands there awkwardly looking at it because he respects the idea that he's not allowed to just go through kids. Mm. Like, like, and if he, if he, he probably did at some point bump over a kid and I roused on him for it and you know, when he steals the ball off people that are trying to boss him around, I think that's hilarious. So like the whole picture is reinforcing to him. Right. So when kids get his ball, he just kind of stands there and is like, Hey, um, I want that. Right. And they'll tell him to sit and he'll be like, "Uh, I want that ball. Like, and just does this weird sort of stare at them. Mm. But there's a little girl in my building, Yaz, that Remy fucking loves and he will do anything that she says. Right. And I realized it's because for like two years, she just picked up the ball and threw it for him without asking anything of Mm. him because she didn't actually know how highly trained he was. She had never seen it. Right. Yeah. And so she would, he would give the ball, she would throw it. He would take it straight back to her. She would throw it. Right. And they would do that for as like, you know, forever. And now that she's old enough and has like seen me actually working him, I think she's actually even seen like my Instagram and stuff. So like she has a fair idea of what he's capable of. He'll do all that shit for her. Mm. And it's because she spent like two years doing nothing but playing with him for free. Mm-hmm. Right. So with other people, he's like, no, you, I don't believe you'll reinforce me. I have no basis in expectation mm-hmm. that if I do what I'm told by you, you will give me that thing. And especially with adults, he's like, I, and I would rather just take it from you. And with kids, it's the same. There's no reinforcement history. He's like, just because you're holding a ball doesn't mean that I'm going to get it, right? And just because, like, yeah, because I've taught him to ignore, like, decoys trying to tell him what to do and stuff like that, right? Mm. So he's actually been programmed to know just because someone's holding a reinforcer, that doesn't mean they're in charge of you. You don't necessarily listen to them. But because she spent two years just playing with him, right? Every opportunity she got, not only does that dog fucking love her, like he spends heaps of time with her. Whenever given the opportunity, he'll just lay there and cuddle with her, which he doesn't even do with me. And whatever she, everything that she knows how to ask him to do of his repertoire of things, he'll do Mm. without a doubt. Because even absent the reinforcer, because there's relationship there and reinforcement history. So, when I saw this question, I was like, you know, if I was given a couple of hours to work with a bunch of kids and talk about dog training, I would just teach them to play with dogs. That's all I'd do. Mm. Uh, I would just be like, hey, here's what dogs like and teach them how to give what dogs like. And then later they can figure out, or, or maybe at the very back end of my lesson, then I would say, now you can hold that over dogs <laughs> <laughs> and you can use that to manipulate them. But I think, especially with kids, kids, you know, cause kids just get fucking bossed around, man. They kids always want, like 
shit rolls downhill. Yeah. And the dog is usually downhill from the kid. Well, that's why I like Mike's approach to it with training chickens because, I mean, a chicken can't fuck you up if you do something. Yeah. I mean, chickens can be scary as hell. Yeah. But like dinosaurs. Yeah, but they can't fuck you up if you get something wrong or, you know, like you put them into a little distress or a little escape avoidance issue, which kids can do sometimes. Yeah, they totally. can push them into those sort of realms and you can't get bitten through frustration, which. Yeah. I'd really admire Mike's patience in those sort of things. You know, That's like it's time. he's done he's done some really quality work with little kids getting them in into that sort of field. I like what you said too. I think that's good. Not being a parent myself and not ever having kids. I mean, I've been around kids, my nieces and so forth have educated them on dogs before well, as much as I can. I like the phrase which I relate to training in general anyway, which is Originally thought it came from the Kalahari Bushman, but then I was told it came through the Scout, which is slowly, slowly catchy monkey. Mm-hmm. And I think kids should learn that as well. They should mm-hmm. learn a variation of that when they're working with dogs is they should learn to understand them. They should respect them. They should see what their parent is doing. I mean, the same way we try and teach impulse control with dogs, we have to teach it with children as well. They want to be involved. They want to do what dad's doing or what mum's doing. And kids go through their own Dunning-Kruger with that sort of situation as well. They think, oh, yeah, I see dad doing it. I can do this. I'm allowed to do this. I've seen kids have tantrums at training schools before where they say, I know how to do it. I've seen you do it. They've got no idea what they're doing. Yeah. They grab the lead. It's a complete shit show. Yeah. Because they're a little kid. Yeah. It's impressed upon them that this is what it is. Mum and dad look, like, make it look easy because they've done the reps. The kid's got no idea. They yeah. don't know what they're doing. I guess it's a, also it's an individual thing. Yeah. It's based on the dogs, based on the parenting of course. Yeah. skills. It's based on the level of what you're knowing. I think as much as you can, introduce them to the concept and the basic, basic theory. Have them come along if you're going to club or you're going to places. Ask them to come and watch. Ask them to come and observe and and see what's going on. Let them do something which has a fail-safe to it, something easy, something simple. The same way we try and teach young puppies or what you were talking before is don't put too many demands on them. Let them have a, a much wider circle that they can work on. You know, dogs and children are very much like a router. They're always trying to work out how to knock the edges off it to turn a square into a circle. (laughs) That's just what a life of a dog is, or even somewhat degree to children to adults, is we're always trying to find the shortcut in everything. Yeah. How do I take the edges off it? How do I make this easier, simplified, so it's going to work to my advantage? And I think when everybody comes to terms with that, the owner, the child, and the dog who plays a part in being on the receiving end. Everyone lives a happier life. For sure. It's a funny one. Like I've had many clients that wanted their kids to train the dog. Mm. You know, you get that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Some of them are fucking babies and like, you're like a seven year old and and they, they've got a puppy and they're like, it's going to be his dog. And it's like, man, this is the blind leading the blind here. Yeah. Like I'm not, they're not even going to feed them in two weeks. Yeah. Mm. But as I say, like the only thing that I think it's dog training in general, I say the same with adults is that, but I think it's especially pertinent if I had a short, if I had a few hours to teach kids, if someone wanted me to teach kids dog training and I had a few hours to do it, the only thing I would bother teaching those kids is how to have dogs like them, but not how to manipulate behaviors, not how to try and read dog behavior. Cause we're going to forget that in five seconds. Like what I would put, what I personally would put all the effort into is to like how to make yourself valuable to a dog. That's a good point. That's probably the safest thing that I would tell a parent. Yeah. And I think, you know, then when the kid pokes a dog in the eye at some point, mm. the dog's like, it's well, forgiving. yeah, at least we've played a lot of ball together. Yeah. Right. Like, but if their dog's first interaction is a kid poking them in the eye or the kid just straight bossing them around with no reinforcement mm. and only compulsion then, right? Like I, that's where I think inherently dogs 
yeah, we've selected them over millennia to fit in with kids. They generally do pretty well. Of course, as dog trainers, we see the cases where they don't, but mm. for the most part, they just find a level and it's all fine. I like that. So what you're suggesting is have a good amount of credit in the bank early. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. But that's what I recommend to everyone, but just mm. in, in like in different terms, but with kids and dogs, so like just teach them how to just show the kid how to make themselves valuable to the dog. I and think that's sage advice, Mr. Stewart. Thank you, sir. I like it. I really like it. Well, and I watched it play out. Like I said, Mm. like Yaz, the way that she just spent two years playing with Remy because she didn't know that he could do stuff. Yeah. And then when it turned out like, oh, wait on, he can do all these things. Mm. He does it for her as well as he does it for me within her capacity to ask for those things. Right. And because he's like, I like you and I believe that you'll reinforce me. You're two years of throwing the fucking ball for me. I believe that when you tell me to do something, you'll throw the ball again. Mm. Interesting concept that. There's been times at club where we've been insisted that certain age kids can't train dogs. A girl who's still someone, I, I just adore her. She's somebody that'll be a friend of mine until the day I die. Her name is Clarissa. She used to train dogs with me. She used to work at my club. She came across to ADT with me. Not only is she really good at handling and managing dogs, she's also a phenomenal model and photographer and everything like that. Love her to death. I met her when she was a young kid. She came down from friends of mine who bought one of my puppies. I think she was like 13 or 14 or something like that. Only a young girl. She came down. They were having trouble with their rotties. And I said, he needs a correction the way he's behaving. He needs a correction. They couldn't do it. She grabbed the dog and said, like this, and corrected the dog. And my jaw fucking hit the ground. (laughs) I said, when you're old enough, do you want to come and intern with me and work with me? And she said, I was waiting for you to ask me. Yeah. And I said, great, as soon as you're old enough, like you're 15 and your mum says yes, you can come and start learning and I'll teach you how to train dogs. I said, you've got it. Yeah. Like you've got it. And I think that's an observation that needs to be extended to children as well is it doesn't matter so much the age. It matters the competency and what they are physically and mentally capable of doing. Some children are wise beyond the years of their physical age. Like they know how to do things. Mm. And I wouldn't stunt a child who – shows the appropriate skill level in any given task. If they're too immature to do it, I wouldn't put them in a situation where it was going to cause a problem for them. But when you're talking little babies and stuff like that, I really like your original suggestion is teach the dog to like them. Yeah. I think that's a really safe thing to do because you're right. There's a lot of times where the relationship that the child has with the dog is largely aversive. The dog sees a child coming and thinks, "Uh oh, he comes this prick. Yep. You know, it, it's going to chase me. It's going to wrap me in a pillowcase. It's going to pinch me. It's going to do something that is ugly. Mate, I really like it. I think good parenting would probably be how can I encourage these two to have a better relationship? Mate, I see it in my own house. You know, Remy, when we brought Axel home, it was really interesting, right? When we brought him home from the hospital, mm. I did the whole, you know, interaction, you know, show them what they are and all that. Valerie was like, oh my God, another baby in the house is the best thing ever, right? Like I'm a mum again. Yep. And I've got like a process for it, learned it with the dogs in the past. My dogs never wear collars in the house. Collars go on. Like just flat collars, I've got something to hold him by. It's a hand for the baby and a hand for the dog. I've got a hand on both of them at all times and I'm holding Remy by like, you know, like thumb under the collar so that I can control him at any point. You know, all the bullshit, right? So that everybody gets a safe interaction. Mm. I showed Remy, I'm like, hey, there's a baby in this. Like, I've got him all bundled up. Remy's like, whatever, I could give two shits. Like, I've no interest in that thing. Like, I don't even acknowledge it as being alive. He just was like, smelled him and was yep. like, whatever. 
we put him in the crib. Remy's on the couch, and then he like he made a noise, you know, like a little baby noise, little gurgle. Remy, Remy yep. jumped up, yeah, and was like, "There's a, something alive in the fucking house." <laughs> so we redo the interaction, and that's where he was like, "Oh, that's a that's alive, right?" And I was like, "Yeah," and you can't eat it. It's fucking. And he was like, "Okay, got it." And then there's no value. Like he just is like that baby's in the house. It was like nothing to him. Yeah. Right. Whereas Valerie, you know, having already had Rip, but like. You know, the whole false pregnancy and her thinking he was his kid and all the weird shit that we went through the first time. Mm. Like, she was like, yes, ready to go again, <laughs> right? Like, I've had my second child. Oh, Val. So that was, like, Remy was just completely indifferent. Valerie would pine over him and hang out with Jane all the time and, like, stare lovingly into the baby's eyes. Mm. Whereas Remy's like, it, it may as well be a football in the house. He had no interest yep. until he started eating. And now he sits in the high chair and Remy loves dropping it. all these food. Drops food everywhere. That's right? like Chad Mackin's yeah, it, well, mate, toddler. It is exactly that. Yep. Because now Axel has value to Remy. Yep. And Remy enjoys his company. He is the leaky toddler. Yeah. But he has value. So mm. like he's like, oh, you gave me nothing. You can't play with me. You can't interact with me. You can't do any of the things that I want to do. But food falls out of your chair sometimes and now I like you. Right? And so it went from indifferent to like, oh, I quite like this kid just because he had value to him. And mm. that's all I think that like with young kids, with any kids, step one is show the dog, this kid has value to you, mm. right? Like you want him around, not like weirdly obsessed with him, and like, but just like good things happen around this kid, whether they come from the kid or from someone else, yep. like there is positive, not just even positive associations, like value, yep. like, like he provides me something that I want. Yep. And then it's home and hose. The dog will take a lot more bullshit. When the kid accidentally pokes the dog in the eye, the dog will be mm. like, well. Yeah, I like it. I think that's really good advice. Yeah. It's funny. It just got me thinking when you started talking about Axel and for some reason it just flashed back into my head what a troubled start he had getting Ugh. into the world. I knew how, how much of an impact it had on you and Jane because you just went off the grid for like two weeks. Yeah. And it was stressing me out because I've never seen you just like detach from the world. I mean, I can't imagine how freaky it would have been for you and Jane. But what I'm trying to say is I can't believe how much trouble he had at the start of the world when COVID was sort of like in full flight, all the shit was going down, you guys were in hospital, you were there all the time, and now I look at him and he's such a happy little baby. You know, <laughs> he's like the he's, happiest baby. He's a happy little fella and I see the little clips he's doing and, you know, like he's just a bright little boy and I, I know, know everybody really, thinks really cool. Everybody thinks their kid, their dog is something special. But what I'll say of him for sure, more so than like Rip was a happy baby, right? Like, yep. and he was an easy, happy baby. But Axel is, he's an old soul, man. And you can tell yeah, he, that he yeah. is in, like, he's been around. He's done a few laps. And right. He is enjoying his baby time. Like, you can see that he's like, this is the easiest part of my life. Like, I have nothing, I, I'm fed. I'm changed. I sleep. There's nothing else for me to worry about. And you yep. can see that he is basking in that. God knows what's in his future, right? It is observable. You can see that he's just like, my life is fucking amazing. Mm. What have I got to be worried about? His general disposition is just like, everything is awesome. I've never met him, but he looks like a cool little kid. Dude, he's a dude. You have, you to, know, you have to bring him out here. Yeah, yeah. I really, I'd love to meet him. I've met Rip a bunch of times. He's a funny kid. Doesn't make you envious that the simplicity and the joy and the bliss that children have. Oh, mate, his biggest problem is like, I've shit my pants, someone has to clean that up Exactly. <laughs> I wish I could do that. But what I will say is <laughs> that poor little fucker, when he got COVID, he was sick because mm. it was the first time he'd ever been sick and he got that. And like probably took about six weeks for him to get back to what he was. 
He was unwell for a long time. Do you know the thing that really brought it home for me when when your whole family got COVID and you and I were chatting about it? You messaged me and you said the hardest thing for Axel is that he doesn't know how to blow his nose. Yeah. And I thought, of course, how frustrating would that be to have a nose full of snot yeah. and not know how to clear it? Yeah. Like it's bad enough being sick and being all mucusy and, and so forth, but not actually understanding that. It must be so frustrating to be in that position. Yeah, well, what happens with little kids is they, when they get sick, until they figure out how to blow their nose, which is not until they're over a year old, like yeah. maybe even sometimes coming up on two before they can really clear their nose, is they just get so congested until they vomit, basically. Especially they'll, they'll, they'll like, it just builds up. They mm. don't know how to blow it out. They get so congested until they can't breathe. It basically completely closes their airway. They vomit, that clears everything out, and then the cycle starts again for another three mm. hours. It's a pain in the ass. Yep. Next question, Danny Strauder says, I'm still very interested to hear about suppression, but the bad news is we're out of time. So sorry, Liam. We're, we're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. We don't, don't have time for it, mate. for little bitches. We don't have time for it. Maybe next time we'll be able to uh, <laughs> fit that in. Anyway, yeah, that's go it. Go fuck yourself, Liam. <laughs> that's Eat it up. for another episode of the Eat an Power. entire bag of dicks, Liam. <laughs> You can have every one of them all to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but I am going to wrap it up because we are out yeah, of time. we are. That's it for another episode of Canon Paradigm. I'm liking these. I really like this. We will keep working through. There's still way more. There's at least another episode in this. We've got Birdie next week. So oh, we do. Okay. We've got Birdie next week and then we can, we can get back at it. We can get back at it. At some stage, we've got to sort of look at getting some guests back on Yeah, it. well, we're pretty regular at this time slot. We've That's been working, so. I mean, this is our show, and it's been nice to have a bit of backwards and forwards of you and me. But it's, it's nice to learn about other people in the industry as yeah. well. So, Birdie next week, then we'll look to get some guests. Yep. Because we're pretty regular Thursday afternoons. Yes. It's hard, though, because. The United States. Yeah. When we're, when we're yeah, offshoring. This is a hard time zone mm. to link people up with. It anyway, is. we'll figure it out. And that's it for another episode of Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, just start screaming about it. Stand on the roof of your car in traffic and start screaming, hey, everybody listen to the Canon Paradigm. Mm. If you don't want to do that, we will accept just like a like, share, review kind of thing. What about if they just walk up on stage and slap someone in the face? (laughs) (laughs) And then sit back down and scream, you listen to the canine paradigm. Get the canine paradigm in your fucking mouth! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Will. What uh, a fall from grace. Yeah. Anyway, do it. Like, rate, share, subscribe, do all those kinds of Just things. Just like that. Just do it. Yeah. If you want to support the show, the very best way to do that is Patreon. Mm. Daddy wants a new set of headphones. Yes. <laughs> we, I'm wearing one new pair we bought as a trial. We need yes. more of them. The new Rode headphones, which are the studio headphones. Yep. Instead of um, having four oddly mismatched ones, mismatched yeah. ones that we've just <laughs> stolen from around the place, we're going to get proper headphones. Yes. So yeah. jump into Patreon, buy some headphones. That'd be great. Three bucks a month gets you access to some stuff. I'm back to recording. I'm doing a lot of, well, just one day of it, but I'm doing online consultations. I'm recording again. So that's going to be turning into Patreon content mm-hmm. and little snippets of other stuff. So there's more stuff going in there. Lives in there once a month, answering your questions. Uh, yeah, jump in there. Get amongst it. Perfect. Other way you can support the show is Teespring. Buy yourself some cool merch, underpants, socks, tapestries, all those kinds of things. And if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is jump into the Facebook discussion group. There's a lot of value in that group. It's amazing to me 
like when I look at the numbers and how like numbers are just so mismatched across different platforms, like mm. the, the amount of downloads doesn't anywhere is so much greater than the Facebook yes. group. And then one of the questions we have is like, how did you hear about the show? Right. And people answer that when they come into the Facebook group and people are like, Oh, I've been listening from the beginning. <laughs> I'm like, how come you're just joining the Facebook group now? I don't understand that. It's a, it's a strange, I don't know. Anyway, so do it. Just join the fucking group. Get in there so we can, you know, this is where we're getting these questions from. Yeah. The Facebook group. It's community. Yeah, mm. exactly. Join join the gang. Join the gang. Join the cool kids. Yes. Drink are the Kool-Aid. We, yeah, we're the cool. Yeah. Are we? I don't know. We, I are, in our, we are in our- I doubt with. We are in our Denning Kruger effect. Who's the cool kids in the dog world? Who is the, like, oh, they're the cool kids. It depends on what sort of circle you're in, I guess. That's a good question. And that probably ranges from, you know, you'd have cool kids in your agility group. They all think they're cool. Yeah. If you're looking at it from a sporting dog group, like a, a working dog group, you kind of look at it and go, they're not the cool kids. We're the cool kids. We're doing the cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. But to them, you know, like they've got all their jackets on. Yeah. They're running around. Their dogs are going crazy, jumping hurdles, doing all sorts of fun stuff. So yeah. every every group has who they consider their they're cool people. Mm. You know, it's like church groups. People who aren't religious look at them and go, oh, fucking look at these guys. Whereas people who are religious go, oh, my God, these guys are rock stars. Like, mm. they're as close to Jesus as you can get. Mm. You know, like, it depends on it depends on what floats your boat. Mm. I'm, uh, I'm doing crazy hands here. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I got crazy fists coming yeah. at you. We need a YouTube version. Yeah. Did you ever watch the Chappelle show? Yes. You know Who, who doesn't watch yeah, yeah. the Chappelle show? So, you know, there's that skit, the player haters ball. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have so when it took back to the tag when i was in the landies we used to have a shirt that was said land platoon we don't even know you and we hate your guts <laughs> it was from the, the player haters ball because mm. we were the cool kids landies was the that was the place to be anyway wasn't it amazing just i know we're trying to wrap up wasn't it amazing how he made that series and because of the Chappelle show he's heralded as the goat yeah you know, the greatest of all time in in comedians yeah and he just literally disappeared off the face of the earth. I mean, he's got his reasons. Like he, yeah, got, yeah. he got Jack of being controlled and yeah. being manipulated and so forth. But he got offered fucking squillions, squillions, like absolute 50 million or something like that, a ridiculous amount. Yeah. But he just walked away. Yeah. Because he knew enough was enough. Well, they had taken advantage of him. There's a lot to that. that is, there is that? a hell of a lot to it. Yeah, yeah. I saw the interview he did with that. And then Netflix did the righty by him, which was really cool. Yeah. When, and when, they stuck by him even when he went through all that shit. Yeah. But so when they bought it from Comedy Central, so they owned it. And so the big issue, I think, like without boring everyone the details, but he never owned the rights to it. Like they paid him to make it and mm. paid him not very much, which was a lot to him at the time but then made so much from it, but he didn't have, he didn't get any like percentage of that. Mm. And so then they could do whatever they wanted with it and continued to make a ton of money out of him without giving him any of it. Mm. And then when Netflix bought it, he said to Netflix like, Hey, this was the deal. And then allegedly, and I don't know the specifics of it, but Netflix backpaid him. We're like, wow. Oh, yeah. So that, that's, that's wow. why I have such a strong, he has such a strong relationship with Netflix because Netflix were like, Oh, okay. Well like, and I don't know the specifics, but they were like, you were hard done by and not by us. This is not a problem we created, but we can fix it for you. Well done, Netflix. Yeah. So there's your plug, Netflix. Yep. And that could all be fake. I might have just made that up. I don't know. Mm. Well, the rain's getting heavier, so it's time to wrap up. All right. Uh, the other thing, shoot an email. We're Info Cannon Paradigm. Goodbye. <laughs>